This episode is brought to you by Beluka Thier Pooper Scooper Services. There's no more affectionate, loyal pet than a 24-foot-tall, 19-ton hornless rhinoceros. Suck it, golden retrievers. Nothing says true love like when little Gloria nestles against you on the couch while you watch Matlock on the TV. But oh, driving that dump truck around on her walks to pick up after your Beluka Thier, that's the true test of love. Balukathir Pooper Scooper Services handles daily cleanup at the park and schedules once per week yard service, so you can concentrate on bonding with your precious companion or companions. It doesn't matter. And when you use the promo code reread, one word, BPSS will send you a custom bin for crate training and a calming hidey hole to alleviate their natural tendency for separation anxiety. And thank you, Balukathir Pooper Scooper Services, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book. Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread. A Gene Wolf story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hey, Craig. Hello, sir. How are you doing? You know, Craig, I got to tell you, when we started this thing, people would respond to the episodes on their various platforms, Facebook, email, Twitter, Reddit, you know, all the places. And, you know, I have these long conversations with them. But now there are so many platforms. There's so many people. I confess, I, I can't always get into it with every comment. And I miss yeah. that. It's hard I mean, it's, to keep up with. Yeah, it's it's a happy kind of bad news. But. Oh, no, I know. And someone just posted... Um, Oh, shoot, I forgot his name. Oh, I had it on the tip of my tongue. But somebody just posted a big fan fiction on yes. Reddit. And I was going to read it last night and totally got distracted. And so I went, I keep meaning to do it because I told the guy, I'm like, oh, I'll read it. Yes. I really want to, but I keep forgetting. <laughs> yeah. And after all, fanfic is going to be our next big empire that we're going to crush, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In order to give away all those books and those posters, we're going to have people do little, little short stories about Agia. At least that's what. My plan is eventually. Yeah, which and yeah. we should actually like talk about that and plan. Yeah, it. we have to give the, <laughs> we have to give those things away. Yes. So, speaking of which, um, did you see about the short story collection coming out? Gene Wolfe short story yes. collection from Yes, Tour? we have news. It's so nice yeah. to have Wolf news. Yep. Right. So, and it's going to be not just another best of. It's supposedly or not supposedly. It's uncollected stuff. So it's right things that I know you have because <laughs> you and your incredibly awesome wife who goes out and hunts down magazines and books and things that she knows you want have gotten all kinds of, of those uncollected yeah. things. So old magazines and older collections with one-off stories that haven't seen the light of day for a long time. It's pretty awesome. So, and yeah. by the way, speaking of just to self-promote, if you are not following rereading Wolf on Instagram, do it. Cause that's where James posts all kinds of cool, like covers of the magazines where stories were originally published and different versions of the books and definitely right. do that. All right. Well, let's get on with this then. Let's see Mike Farrar. Your arms from me. He liked just about everything we did. 
in the last episode. He says, this was another in a long series of great episodes, and I'm not butt-kissing here, but I find it very exciting to be on this voyage of discovery with you all. Well, thanks for coming along. That's very cool. And I keep worrying every time we do one lately, I'm like, ah, we really said much. Are we still just summarizing (laughs) things? And then it turns out, no, there's, there's plenty of stuff going on. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, in an hour and a half, we're going to come up with something. (laughs) He also says, uh, you mentioned re-listens. This is an episode that demands a re-listen, perhaps several. Craig, by the time we do this, I've said it and I, then I'll do like, two additional listens to the episode. So I do re-listen, but I think it's amazing that there are people who are re-listening for fun. And we're yeah. talking for an hour and a half, two hours. I, I wonder about lifestyles. But I mean, it is COVID, <laughs> but generous spouses, yeah, spouses that's who are happy you have something <laughs> to occupy yourself with. Yeah. Put on your headphones. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, uh, Mike liked Roy Lackey's theories about Jonas, especially the part about maybe Jonas being Sidero, even though I think Roy sort of abandoned that one near the end. But, you know, with wolf theories, no theory is orphaned for long. He liked my Severian as the Megatherian in the cavern, even though I'm personally troubled by that one. But Mike liked it. You liked it. What have I done? (laughs) But uh, Mike says, it doesn't seem far-fetched to me at all. The entire new sun has him being enticed into the water, and once he gives in after the deluge, it becomes almost a home. He says at one point he's become Oannes to the people of Ushis. Add the attraction to Juturna, the pale, pale skin of Thecla, Grandma Dorcas's uncanny similarities <laughs> to the Undyne sea rack and her rebirth from the water, etc., etc., and then also Mike Benowitz, he likes it. He says, man, this episode with everyone is Severian theme led my mind to suggest that the Mandragora in Spirits at the end of Citadel of the Autark is the mm-hmm. real first Severian. <laughs> it has a sun shaft shining on its dusty curcubit. So that marks it as family, right? <laughs> And Severian insists that they are somewhat alike. He wants Severian to break the glass and kill him because his efforts have culminated. Yeah, just kidding, but also not. Well, Mike, you are truly enticing me with the first Severian angle. (laughs) And Shawn Michael Robinson will love that you've brought in the Shaft of Light, designating a family member, and the Mandragora calls him brother. The other possibility is that it's his twin. I have a related Valeria is everywhere theory also. I I don't know, Craig. The everyone is Severian theory can work, but I I guess it's not the story I want want it to be. I think we'd probably end up with a whole lot of exceptions by the time we keep working through stuff. (laughs) Just like everyone is Severian, except for for Talos, because we know he's not here. Maybe except for Jonas and yeah. Still, I, I try to follow the clues wherever they lead, you know, but people think the first Severian theory may be too easy to explain anything without proof. I disagree, but, you know, I'm going to save that one for later. Well, combine that with the everyone is Severian, well, slippery slope, Craig, (laughs) slippery slope. Uh, Mike Farrar also likes my all exultants are clones theory. He says, is there somewhere on the Earth list or another group where you've more fully explored the theory? This one really has my wheels turning. 
And Megas trying to make all mankind into one as an Asia, while heroes are pushing an autarky where Severian contains multitudes in one. I don't know where it's all going, but damn if it isn't interesting. Uh, no, no, Mike, it's, it's new. It sort of blossomed out of our discussion about House Azure and Severian's elevation. But that connection, I don't think we made that one, did we, when we were talking about it before, about clones and Asha? 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 Never sure. But if the exultants, yeah, if they are clones, Vodalus is in league with Megatherians and he wants to you know, bring the exultants, he's, or at least he's definitely going to keep the exultants there in power. Thea seems to definitely think so. So mm-hmm. you definitely have those two possibly in league there. And maybe you're just going to get a whole race of exultants. Exul- oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> now I know they're evil. <laughs> well, I do think that seeing all the exultants as clones, it provides an appealing explanation for both false Thecla's statement that Thecla is no more the real Thecla than she is, and Severian smelling her scent shortly after sensing the Catherine maid in his room. Incidentally, Wolf wrote two short stories in 1977 and 1980 about societies of women who reproduced totally by cloning without men, many mansions, and in looking glass castle. So that's three years and the same year before uh, Shadow of the Torture was published. Hmm. There is, however, a very significant hurdle. Severian makes no statement of recognition between the maid at his exaltation and false Thecla or the real Thecla, and that's no mm-hmm. small thing. Yeah, I mean, sure, Severian is actively occluding the story of his mother. Because yeah, as Autark, of course, he knows who his mother was and the circumstances of her arrest and death. He would be able to know that story and access any records from the tower. He's actively occluding what he knows about his twin, and maybe Aglas's background, too. So it's possible he's just not telling us the details of his reaction to the maid, so not to tell us too much. but. I don't like that kind of explanation. Mm-hmm. And it could also be that, you know, she was disguised in some way, but for a lot of reasons, I don't like that. And then again, given Severian's interaction with Thecla and false Thecla, that would be necessary, right? Yeah. I think I know what it is though. Oh yeah. The mention of the clone wars happened in what? 78, <laughs> 79. <the> Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. The wolf was working on it. So if that's true, then what you have then is a clone war. Wow. That's what it is. He was <laughs> he was a fanboy working up his own sort of Star Wars fan fiction. In the thing. Help me, Obi-Wan Spicoli. Help me. <laughs> so. Charles Gillingham. But if you go down to Gillingham, you'll see the same as I. Oh. Clarified the connection that he drew between H.P. Lovecraft's The Rats in the Walls to The Man-Ape's Cave. He says... The Rats in the Walls ends with the main character discovering a massive cavern below his family's ancestral home. There's a whole city down there with buildings from all time periods up to about the 1600s. His ancestors kept people down there for eating so long that they became quadrupedal, which makes me wonder what the man-apes ate. Yeah, although having a whole lost civilization down there just guarding treasure is pretty cool and all that doesn't make much sense to me why not just bury landmines that's why i'm uh reminded of the morlocks someone has to be maintaining all the future tech maybe man apes Mm -hmm. live under the stone town maintaining its galactic satellite dish (laughs) our uh reader interview with diana lambert uh we were talking about 
well, we were talking ill of Land Across. I, I have the book, but I've yet to read it, and I really need to. After all, we all have to walk across the hot coals sometime. <laughs> but it provoked Callum McPherson on Facebook and others to come to the novel's defense. And Brian H. said, what I particularly love about Land Across is that it's like experiencing one of those weird and terrifying dreams. When I wake, I'm hugely relieved to find that it was only a dream, but part of me feels a sense of loss. The dream was so intensely strange and important while I was inside it that I kind of wish I could go back to experience more and find out what it all meant. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> um, but I know I had to sort of stop myself because it was either in response to that or somewhere else where I was about to go on a rant against and I'm like, no, just let it go. But I did I did get my, why does everything just happen in coffee shops with them telling about everything cool that happened before? I did get that jab in there. But that one's even stumped Mark. Like he still uh, will send me little texts or PMs or something when he's like, I'm still trying to figure out this damn thing on Land Across. I don't know what's going on. And I can, I even reread it recently trying to help him. And I don't know, I'm lost. Let me ask you this, because I haven't read it yet. Do you feel more lost with that? novel than interlibrary loan yeah actually because there are times in land across where i don't even know what the surface story is like i mean it's <laughs> not truly i mean like i just can't figure out motivations like why characters are doing things or like yeah it just it seems absolutely opaque to me mm. and i don't know making notes for us to do a series on land across <laughs> <That's it. laughs> i don't know although who knows maybe after if we did that, it would be like you and New Sun. Maybe I'd like it better once we figure something. Yeah, out. yeah. That's a that's a long hike. <laughs> Let's see here. Uh, Neil Smith Neil at the cross. said on Reddit, hearing about the derivations of Drota and Roach's name having similar meanings but in different languages leads me to wonder: Are these names another? twin pairing only instead of a boy girl pair they could be identical twins they are you know, at least nominally the same age and i don't recall any contrasting physical descriptions being given well actually that's true uh, there are no real physical descriptions of trot so he says that would put a new spin on why severian confuses drot and roche which one saw the pikes in the first chapter, although his memory is very vivid and visual. That doesn't mean he understands well which one said what thing. And as, you know, as I said, Craig, I find that to be a very unsatisfying solution to the Roche mix-up, but I can't yeah. defeat it from the text. Mm -hmm. We don't get much to go on there. Right. Let's see, on Twitter, Patrick DeWen, we got a very lengthy theory. That's pretty cool. He says, the further I go into the reading of the Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe, the more surprised I am that my favorite theory isn't spoken of much. Severian demonstrates that his and Thecla's memories have fused to the point that he remembers her past as his own. And in fact, his own presentation as a person sometimes is more Thecla than Severian. How many people are stuffed into that head of his by the time he's writing the book? Consequentially, mm -hmm. why wouldn't we assume that much of his recollections of events are the recollections of others, or at least colored by the memories that he now has of collected mm -hmm. autarchs? 
So the faults we see in his memory aren't faulty in the way we think. His memory is overlooked too by too much information to process and people being reconstructed from the bits he has of them, the, the fingertip analogy. So to me, the book is more about memory and identity. Well, well done. Well done, Patrick. Um, well, Craig, we actually banged this one around early on. I, yeah. I, I don't know where you stand right now, but for me, this theory can explain Severian's confused memory, maybe. The Drosha Drote error, I, I'm not so sure. But the, it can't explain the manskin, doskin error, but mm-hmm. I really don't have an explanation for that either. For me, an explanation of Severian's memory needs to explain Severian's peculiar statements about his memory within the related story and regarding the period before becoming autarch and extending after it. In chapter three of Shadow, he says that although he never forgets, he can't be sure his memory isn't lying to them. And in chapter eight of Claw, he says he remembers when he recounted a memory different from the way he remembers it now. And most of these memories are not related to the lives of the autarch or Thecla's life. So if you're setting aside the first Severian solution, I see gravitating to this option, but it's just still hard for me to connect those dots. Yeah, that was what I was going to say was that the pieces where he does have sort of memory problems, they seem specific to Severian's life sometimes. Mm, They're not big historical things, or they're not like the passages with Thecla where he just switches and all of a sudden he's Thecla, right? Because right. we do get a message just like that. Um, I like the idea. I, I mean, it's definitely a good candidate for why there might be some problems. The other thing about that, though, is that some of those little mistakes are so subtle that mm-hmm. to that subtle and then connected with hypothetical other people that are in there. I mean, I, I guess the other autarchs aren't hypothetical, but we don't know anything really specific about them. And so there's not much to connect that idea with the the memory loss mm-hmm. it's not wrong or impossible by any means but it just it seems unlikely yeah. to me but there's lots of things that are unlikely that are true about this book so. <laughs> yes that's absolutely true well actually ian c smith has something very similar i i mr smith he's taking it at a slightly different angle he's been waiting for chapter eight for a long time me too as you know. And now he has something to say. He says, it was really interesting to hear you guys talking about theories relating to Abaya at all. Some great stuff here. However, my interest lies, as usual, in what the chapter says about Severian's memory. And I'd like to propose that it provides both an explanation for his repeated claims to a perfect memory and a final disproof of the same. And this is going to be a long one. But here it goes. Okay. Okay, Ian. Here we go. So, as he has done several times before, Severian waxes lyrical in this chapter about how great his memory is. And that makes me want to look for an immediate misremembering nearby, as these always seem to pop up whenever he makes memory claims. And sure enough, it shows up right at the start, where author Severian seems to have forgotten that he's previously told the reader several times that he has a perfect memory. Quote, (laughs) you must have thought this repeating conversations verbatim was only a conventional device that I adopted. Truth is, I am cursed with perfect recollection. So far, so standard. But then we get this key sentence. 
I have recalled some scene to mind previously and how that remembered incident differed from the memory I have of it now. James uses a first variant explanation for this, but I want to put that aside for now as it's unfalsifiable and could be used to blanket explain any or all memory deficits, delusions, or anything else. Sorry, James. Huh? <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. I can just get rid of the most powerful theory. <laughs> yeah, <it's really laughs> Instead, you know, let's look at what specifically this sentence says. Okay. Well, let's go for it, Ian. First of all, as a psychologist, I've always wondered how much Severia knew about the 1980s psychology of memory, specifically how memories are not seen as being stored data to be retrieved in perfect form, which is what is claimed of Severian's memory repeatedly, but are actively reconstructed by people, colored by their current situations. As realize that's kind of a miracle. It's like magic <laughs> that mm -hmm. the, the brain actually does that. This sentence tells me that Wolf knew about this aspect of the science of memory and therefore knew that the memories just don't work the way Severian claims unless he has a magic memory because he's divine. But second of all, even if he has a magic memory, the sentence is clearly a contradiction, right? Yes. Now, for the good stuff. You guys talked a lot at the start of the Claw reread about the early chapters of it mirroring the same chapter numbers of Shadow and found some great parallels. So what happens in chapter 8 of Shadow? Well, this is where Thecla tells Severian that, quote, when she is free, she is going to found a new, that is, fake religious sect based on a contradiction that there is no afterlife and that this was revealed to her by a ghost. So I believe the contradictory sentence in chapter 8 of Claw is actually a sign that Thecla has actually achieved the goal she lays out in chapter 8 of Shadow. Severian's perfect memory is repeatedly seen as being key to him becoming and being the conciliator. And when the author Severian makes these repeated claims regarding an impossible perfect memory, I propose it is actually Thecla in Severian speaking. She is free now. And so setting up the dogma of the religion of the conciliator through writing these impossible claims that are frequently contradicted throughout the book, most starkly and finally in the sentence about how his memory is so perfect, he can even recall flaws in it. By the way, I think this is incredibly humorous. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. I was going to say, yeah, it's it's funny. If not, <laughs> if it, whether it's true or not, it's a it would be funny. Like the idea is just it's cool because it's Thecla, yeah, paying off on that grand deception. Yeah. Um, it would also very much lend itself to you know Peter Wright's kind of thing or to some kind of story where what we're getting is you know there there are no miracles going on. It's all yeah. trying to you know support a new regime or theology or whatever. But I guess the the one question I would have is I don't know if that would be the contradiction because mm. it's not it's not a contradiction that's directly involved in the theology that she's or the, the religion that she's coming up. It's certainly it's a th contradiction about a guy who's at the center of it, but it's not like a, a sort of Zen Cohen kind of contradiction of, mm. you know, there is no afterlife and you will live forever or something yeah. like that. Right. right. Um, 
that just starts to sound a little bit too ingenious <laughs> a little bit on, on Wolf's part, not on, not yeah. on, on his, not to say I really like it because I agree with him. I think it's really funny yeah. um, as an idea, but I just, it doesn't pass my gut test this time, which it feels I, like something Borges <laughs> would do though. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think it's definitely a kind of thing. Um, Although maybe again, I don't know. Borges was so into like actual big metaphysical contradictions instead mm. of something. I don't, I don't know, but that's, that's sort of the same idea. I, yeah. I don't know. I just something to hang on to though. Yeah. As a really interesting thing. And I think it's definitely, if you want to see new sun as more of a sort of atheistic book or, or everything's just a manipulation by high rose to get the future going, this is a cool thing to have in your pocket. Yeah. To say, oh, this is one way we could explain what's going on with that memory. Well, if I was going to say that there's a problem, it's that we have a memoir of a guy who not only doesn't have a perfect memory, he doesn't really have an adequate memory. <laughs> right? I Like you, I, I'm not comfortable with it, but obviously um, I have something else I'm, I'm comfortable yeah. with, so that helps. But, uh, you know, he, does, he brings up, you know, whether it's a false file. I am very aware that the first Severian theory is incredibly powerful. And I often think uh, it is in the, constantly in the back of my mind that I might actually be able to explain everything with it and it could still be, you know, objectively wrong. So the, that's, that's the trick is to be able to present the story oh, yeah. convincingly with it. And, you know, that's why I'm still running through. It still mostly works. So I I do like, but I, I don't think that it, it, it inevitably works. Sometimes I, I run into situations that don't really quite fit. Like, like I, I actually point out that there's no reason for the first Severian to change the water into wine right. from the ewer at the end. I can't really think of a reason why he would choose to do that. But, you know it's still working mostly i i like that That just made me think this is related but not directly in what we talked about but do you remember something in earth of the new sun where severian's memory is wrong are there specific things that happen in earth there he makes another mention of the man skin pouch that he kept the claw in okay and, and i'm going to tell you that is one reason why i believe that it's a typo because it's an error that just continues into the new into the new novel. Mm, yeah, oh, I was wondering too. Like, if if the whole draw to roach thing was intentional, it would seem like one obvious thing to do would be to parallel that with some other kind of big obvious mistake in mm. the first chapter of Earth. But I, I don't know. Anyway, that's oh, that was just something yeah. else I was thinking. Like, just as, as a way to sort of substantiate that Wolf was very intentionally he did it on purpose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I thought we thought we had found something, but it turned out no, that wasn't it. Yeah, but it, that would it would also be weird if Earth doesn't have any noticeable memory problems. Then that could well lead. It, yeah, it it just kind of makes them seem a little bit more editorial mistakes rather than intentional. But I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm not well, I don't. I'm not convinced of that because the events on Yesud are outside of the universe. And so, well, there's two things that I see for a first Severian issue. It's not a problem because once they leave the universe, uh, Severian's connection between of having a previous life is is broken. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is that when he gets off of Yesa and he lands on Earth, he's once again in a 
in my opinion, in a subsequent universe, and the first variant is gone. So he ceases to have those problems. But it is curious if he has, I would be curious to know if we can detect places where he's had errors, continues to have errors. I'll have to double check because I just don't remember. Um, and also, too, he's he's writing it in much closer proximity to when those things happened than when he's writing it. It's like 10 years later, right? 10 right. years later. Yes. Later. I don't know. Hard to, hard to figure out. Lots of things. But, anyway, but that's one thing I just want to go check now. Yeah. Let's see. Let's also, uh, Gary Owens. Gary, Indiana. What a wonderful name. Disagrees that it would be just awesome if someone became Gene Wolfe's Christopher Tolkien and published a Silmarillion of the New Sun. He says, James commented in the last podcast that he hoped for the eventual release of Wolf's notes. They would be fascinating, but potentially could kill the real beauty of Wolf. Answer all the questions and the Book of the New Sun is over. As it is, we can reread and enjoy Wolf forever. I love Wolf's puzzles, but without his prose and our Sisyphean attempts to solve them, they would just be cheap tricks. I get that. Yeah. Wolf said something similar to that to uh, Neil Gaiman once. He said something to the effect of the explanations never explain and the mysteries never die. But you know, there was an interesting discussion around that. Uh, personally, the Silmarillion you know, didn't spoil Lord of the Rings for me. And I feel like I understand you know, the Book of the New Sun now more than ever. And I have a higher opinion of it now than I ever did. Uh, it was an interesting conversation. The link is in the show notes. No, I totally get the worry in the field, but there's still, there's that part of me that's like, let's find all the documents yes, right. all together and lay them all out. Yep. <laughs> I want to see the file. And Greg, we have an Apple podcast review. Oh, we do. Oh, this actually surprises me. Oh, cool. I yeah. I haven't been checking the email. <laughs> <laughs> it's a short one by Ike Lueri. I hope that pronunciation is right, Ike. Uh, the title is Detailed Analysis of SF's Most Detailed Works. It says, Relax dialogue between these guys explains all the illusions in Gene Wolfe's classics. I was too lazy to look up myself. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Ike. Yeah, thanks very much. I appreciate you doing it up on Apple Podcasts because even yeah. though Apple Podcasts may soon be replaced by Spotify as the biggest thing, that's still where it's still the hub. Now, we also have new patrons, three folk who all signed up at the master level, so everybody gets music. First is Paul Cook. So exercise some judgment. Too much broth can spoil the cook. Ted Kohlberg. Pull up skirt, ice Kohlberg. And he or she who shall be known as Tough Subject. So I hope you enjoy your little musical time. <laughs> but thank you so much for helping out. And remember that, yeah, you can help us out on Patreon. You can join up at $2 or $5 a month. Either one will get you access to the extra episodes we're putting up over there, which right now we have two long episodes. I'm like, was it three or three and a half hours? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> On Borges's Talon, Ukbar, and Orbis Tertius, which was a lot of fun for me. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was quite as much fun for you, but it was a lot of fun for me because I got to play philosophy teacher again. I, and I well, I appreciate it because I am definitely out of my depth when it comes to that. <laughs> but that's a lot of fun over there. And the $5 level, you just get stickers, extra little surprises here and there. But 
If you're just curious, $2 a month will get access to those and help us pay for hosting fees and upgrading some stuff so that we can hopefully sound better and better. Yeah. And also, you know, everything I say here, Craig, everything I say, even this that I'm saying right now, it's all written down because that's the only way I can communicate on mic. <laughs> so <laughs> I, so I've taken those, what, what Craig has always called the skeletons. And there's a link to that in a uh, Patreon post. It's available to all of our patrons at the $2 level or above. Yep. And so thank you. Thank you guys for making a lot of this stuff happen. Absolutely. And if you want to just check it out, go to patreon.com and search for Rereading Will Podcast. Uh, James has put a couple other things up there. I think you posted them on, on Reddit, too, and on Facebook. So, But just a yeah. few other little write-ups that, that we've been talking about and that he's been doing to help us stay organized behind the scenes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff I do post out there for the whole public. Someone actually said, thanks for doing this. You really shouldn't, <laughs> but you know, I, especially the stuff for the new sun that's directly related to new sun. I'm trying to crack this book and I need your help. I, I can't hide those things away, but you know, what we should do is we should do some kind of a poll to see whether it offends the patrons that we give away so much for free and they're, <laughs> they're paying all of the, you know, they're, they're doing the heavy lifting, you know, uh, Craig, when universal, finally makes that book of the new sun movie the <laughs> chapter we're going to do here. It includes the money shot and it also happens to include the movie ride at universal studios. Come on, kid. <laughs> we're going to get in line and ride the Beluka theater. Uh, I always did want to ride one of the, the giant oliphants from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> These things will work. How many legs do you think they have? Right. Don't we find out horses have six legs? Destriers have the six legs. I think, so, yeah, Destriers do. A Beluka theory only has four legs, but who knows about Severian's Beluka theory. Yeah. Chapter nine, The Liege of Leaves. Ah, the Liege of Leagues. So I got to ask from the beginning, is there a little pun or a little irony in the title. So the liege of leaves, he's also the liege of leaving. Eventually we find out that he wants to take back to the stars. Oh, uh -huh. well, that's interesting. Or is that pushing a little too far? I don't well, know. it probably is, but I like it. <laughs> I was sitting there this time thinking, oh, okay. So we're, we're going to have a lot of talk about trees and things like that. But then the fact that instead of trees, he says liege of leaves. And I know it rhymes and, <laughs> and all that, but still. I was wondering, and just, so that's something I've never seen before. Like, like, why is he called the Liege of Leaves exactly? But we'll get there. Yeah, you know, well, Liege, I think it originally meant like freedmen. So I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. You think it's? Do you think that's playing off the idea that he's, you know, he's looking for freedom for mankind? And maybe so. Yeah, I mean, they are about leaving Earth, or at least that's what he says. The, that's sort of the big dream that he's pushing forward is that we can get technology back and start to explore the stars again. And that's kind of the, one of the, one of the components of his dream. Yeah. Um, but it's a weird mix too, because of the Liege of Leaves and all the tree imagery that we get here. There's also a whole lot about him that Severian insists is kind of like on the side of nature somehow. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this weird, yeah, mix going on with, with 
the sort of symbolism that Vodalus is all wrapped up in, but then the actual things that he wants to do. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, are they natural? I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know, but it's just a different set of set of things. I also think there's supposed to be a bit of a strong kind of Robin Hood vibe yeah. going on here. I think he's trying to lure the, us yeah. into being on Vodalus's side. Mm-hmm. Initially and I think here, that yeah. makes sense too. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so this is the next day after Morwenna's execution. Severian is supposed to execute Barnack today, but you know they're never going to get around to that. If Severian left the mansion on Sunday afternoon, this is either Saturday morning or the following Sunday morning, at most. So says I. But <laughs> it appears that you know Wolf is still being deliberate in obscuring exactly how long it's been, right? So coming back from the cavern and Agia's uh, assassinationist attempt. They are assaulted by two Vodalari waiting in his hotel room. Vodalus, as a listener noted, and we discussed in the comments last time, tried to meet with Severian the night before, but you know he no sooner arrived than that Severian stole his horse and ran off to meet with Thecla. Mm-hmm. And consequently, Severian and Jonas weren't home when he arrived. And that Jonas was able to follow Severian on his merit trip strikes me as a bigger deal all the time, but I can't come up with a textual explanation at this time, so I'm just going to have to let it go. Yeah, I still got nothing on that. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I think it's fishy. I might have something here eventually, but at this time, I, anything I say would be pure speculation. Yeah. The, and the only thing I can think is that maybe the mine is like the way to it is so obvious that it's like a huge road. And then the only reason I say that is because we find out about the trash heaps that are all around here. But and he didn't know where he, I mean, yeah, so he didn't just know got where a letter and he just, I'm out of here. Yep. No, I know. Yeah. I know. Oh, well. Uh, so the Vodalari, one guy with a scar and the other with a beard, they push Severian and Jonas face to the wall and tie their hands. They put their cloaks on them so passerbys won't notice that they're being abducted and that their hands are tied behind their backs. They lead them to an exceptionally large balukathir. And that means something because a balukathir is the or one of the most massive land animals ever known to have lived. Essentially, it's as massive as a land animal can be. It was a hornless rhinoceros, a strange description since the word rhinoceros means having a horn you know, on its nose. <laughs> Which also seems like a very Wolfian kind of play. Yeah, there you words, go. Yeah. Hornless rhinoceros. Well, you're mm. not a rhinoceros. A hornless horn monster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's about as good a description as a lot of things we get. But anyway, the message has been conveyed. You, you know what I mean. It looked like a cross between a rhino and a giraffe. It was about 20 feet tall. A bit less than six meters. And somewhere he says three times the size of him, of the height of a man. You know? Right, which would be like 18 feet or something like that. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. so anyway, the Beluga theory is shifting its feet back and forth, and there's a plain howdah, which I suppose means that it's unadorned or that it's just a flat board on top of his back. A howdah is a saddle or a seat or a platform. It, I guess it's like a platform in this case because it's used to ride on top of an elephant. But in mm-hmm. this case, it's a you know twenty foot tall rhino giraffe, yeah. and the howdah is made of iron, 
and horn. And whether the horn is a facade material or whether it means that this is really ruggedly or haphazardly constructed from ready materials, that's not clear. Wolf seems to have given us a lot of leeway in our mental picture. <laughs> so as one does with elephants, the guy on Severian's left, the guy with the black beard, taps the back of the Balukathir's knee and it kneels. And then they're forced onto the howdah on its back. So with the two kidnappers and the Balukathir driver and Severian and Jonas, there's five of them on the howdah. So when arriving at Saltus, I assume from the south, Severian and Jonas passed through hills of debris from the mines, mm -hmm. mostly large piles of stone and brick. I think the picture is like, you know, a big junkyard of bricks mm -hmm. and stones and some of the, you know, only the most common types of artifacts. He doesn't mention it, but when he rode to meet Thecla, he passed through a few of these, but mostly he took off northeast where the forest was closest to the village. And I've always thought of the river being on the east side of Saltus, but clearly Saltus is on the east side of the river with the guile to the west. The direction they are taking now, uh, which is, I suppose, nearly due north, is filled with heaps of tailings. So tailings are the term for when you mine ore and separate the valuable parts from the parts that aren't, the tailings are the parts that aren't. And so I guess this is like hills of stone and brick again. But remember that earth is depleted of normal ores. So all the mines are mining materials of the past. Actually, I guess we do that now. Computer parts are sent off to poor countries where people break them apart and get the valuable metals. Well, so they do that in a massive systematic industry. Uh, mm -hmm. Unlike in the South, there is no path through the hills or rubble. So I guess it's just one big mass of continuous mountains of debris. And in addition of stone and brick in the useless debris that they've thrown out, there were other things that, quote, might otherwise have defamed their village and occupation. And there's a hint add a peculiar cultural perspective on some of the things of the past, things mined from the past that would mm -hmm. have caused the people to think less of them if they were known to have touched them or extracted them, right? Yeah, yeah, which is a weird kind of superstition mm -hmm. aspect that they seem to have. Well, it also might we'll, – we'll get to the what the other things that they might mm -hmm. feel like they would like to mention that they're digging up. But uh, you want to re read this next section? Yeah, and it's the, the thing he first says here is just how huge they are. So everything foul lay in tumbled heaps ten times and more the height of the Balukathir's lofty back, obscene statues, canted <laughs> and crumbling, and human bones to which strips of dry flesh and banks of hair still clung. And with them ten thousand men and women, those who, in seeking a private resurrection, had rendered their corpses forever imperishable, lay here like drunkards after their debauch their crystal sarcophagi broken, their limbs relaxed in grotesque array, their clothing rotted or rotting, and their eyes blindly fixed upon the sky. So I think maybe these are the things that would otherwise have defamed their village and occupation. Yeah, the actual Yeah, 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 the concern that, you know, that the miners would seem to them as grave robbers or something mm -hmm. like that. Just like, you know, voteless and his people. Which is a weird kind of sort of taboo to have because apparently mining things from the past is really, really important, but then not touching the recently <laughs> dead seems yeah. to be super important. So maybe then we're kind of, maybe that's part of the reason of the, the weird taboo. 
Yeah, it's a matter of context, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and but I mean, they are, you know, they are sort of grave robbers, right? And they, oh yeah. And they're yeah, not so they're not so different from the archaeologists who dig up mummies. No, and I mean, I think that's reading at this time. I was like that maybe that's kind of intentional. That the mm-hmm. difference between how much of a problem they had with the actual grave robbers, but then this whole culture seems to be based around kind of the same thing. So yeah. And these people who wanted, quote, a private resurrection, I guess, you know, they're like people who have their bodies or heads cryogenically frozen. These are Mm -hmm. people who have been frozen without the need of cold. They've made their bodies imperishable for the day when technology would allow them to be brought back to life. However, people like that never consider that the people who would come up with that technology would be less interested in bringing multitudes of past generations <laughs> back to life than just keeping themselves alive. Yeah. Yeah. A common thread in Wolf's stories, I think, is a contempt for the idea of a pitiful eternal life as opposed to embracing eternal change. We see it in Fifth Head of Cerberus here, most openly in The Borrowed Man and Interlibrary Loan. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, too, is the number of these 10,000s and mm-hmm. more. Right. I mean, just the number. It's not like he just body stumbled. after body yeah. after body. Yeah. It's not like they stumbled on, oh, hey, it was a cryogenic place, right. you know, that happened to have some sarcophagi. No, these are apparently, this is just a common thing. Right. In, in the numberless hordes of things here. Yeah. Even it almost makes me think that, like, even this is from like separate civilizations <laughs> or like <laughs> generations. Like you've got corpses from one society. Right. Years later, we're never, yeah. So this is what became of those people who sought a private resurrection. They've been resurrected without life. Mm-hmm. Also, Severian mentions that these mountains twinkle with billions of shining shards of glass. So naturally, I see a Hamlet's Mill tableau here, and I'm right now <laughs> struggling to imagine a set of constellations or stars that could be imagined as five men on a Balukathir. Maybe uh, if the Balukathir were the massive constellation novice which is a ship constellation but it's really big and oh, i have to think about that hmm. okay. so severian and jonas try to ask the thugs why they've been abducted and where they're going but all they get is slapped around so they just stop so the balikathir crawls its way through the mountains of worthless debris and incorruptible bodies, and eventually things calm down and Severian tries again. He asks, you know, where are they taking them? And the guy with a scarred face says, to the wild, the home of the free men and lovely women. <laughs> that part reminds me this time of like the, the beginning or that part of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where <laughs> men were real men, women were real women, and small furry creatures from whatever were real small furry creatures from them. yeah. Where the men are men and the women are too. (laughs) What's that one from? That that was something I I picked up when I was like 18 or something like that. Someone used to say that. Used to say that about certain towns. (laughs) So Severian, who imagines that Agia is the only lovely woman around and any cutthroat he meets or working for her, asks the guy with the scar if he works for her. And he laughs and shakes his head. My master is Vodalus of the Wood. Vodalus? Oh, so you know him. Well, I bet he's going to like you since you were going to put one of his servants on the rack. Interesting that they are supposed to be free men and readily admit to being Vodalus's servants. Just saying. Severian was about to tell him all about how he met Vodalus a year and a half ago, but then he started to doubt whether Vodalus would remember it. 
Now, if the theory is at all true that the body they were digging up was Thecla's and there was some kind of timey-wimey thing going on, then as far as Vodalus is concerned, that thing happened a little over two weeks ago. So I'm sure he would remember. And I'm watching for a clue about that this time. Yeah. And and we'll talk about how some of those ideas play out with this mm-hmm. in a second. So Severian just says that if he'd known Barnock to be a servant of Vodalus, he would on no account have agreed to perform his excruciation. And this, of course, is a lie. And Severian acknowledges that. He'd figured that by doing the job and getting paid for it, he could limit Barnock's suffering. <laughs> but they don't believe it either. It's a pitiful lie. Everyone knew Barnock was being executed for being Vodalus' spy. The three Vodalari get a good laugh out of it, though. So Severian mentions that he took off to the northeast the night before, and he asks if that's where they're going now. And that's how he learned that Vodalus came to see him the night before, and someone stole his horse. <laughs> good luck getting that back. Jonas whispers to him that they're going true north, because he can tell by the sun. And the Vodalari with the scar says that they are going north for a little bit, and then they're going to turn off shortly. So I can only assume they're going to turn off toward the east a little bit. To kill time, the scar guy describes all the horrible things Vodalus does to captives. But Severian is a torture snob and thinks that they are, quote, primitive in the extreme and more productive of theatrical effects than true agony. (laughs) (laughs) Torture snob is cool. That's a good way to put it. So, yeah. So, but then something odd happens. And this is where we get one of Severian's first little weird asides. As if some invisible hand had spread a curtain over us, the shadows of the tree fell upon the howdah. The glitter of billions of shards of glass was left behind with the staring of the dead eyes, and we entered into the coolness and green shade of the high forest. Among those mighty trunks, even the Balukathir, though he stood three times the height of a man, seemed no more than a little scurrying beast. And we who rode his back might have been pygmies from some children's tale, bound for the anthill stronghold of a pixie monarch. And it came to me that these trees had been hardly smaller when I was yet unborn, and it stood as they stood now when I was a child playing among the cypresses and peaceful tombs of our necropolis, and that they would stand yet drinking in the last light of the dying sun, even as now, when I had been dead as long as those who rested there. I saw how little it weighed on the scale of things whether I lived or died, though my life was precious to me. And of those two thoughts, I forged a mood by which I should be ready to grasp each smallest chance to live, yet in which I cared not too much whether I saved myself or not. By that mood, as I think, I did live. It has been so good a friend to me that I've endeavored to wear it ever since, succeeding not always, but often. Yeah, so what do you think? (laughs) It's sort of like a very zen-like... Yeah, it's a weird thing. um, The first part... Uh, is he he has a moment of a kind of perspective where he's like, you know, I'm just a a moat in this grander world and Mm -hmm. these trees have been here so much longer than I've been and will outlast me and has that feeling of insignificance. Um, But then he kind of mixes that up, he says, with this sort of base survival instinct of I don't want to die, I want to live. And somehow between the two, which are kind of contradictory, he says it put him in just the right mood. Um, and right. yeah, yeah, I mean, it made him, made him calm, made him, made him calm. Made yeah. Him loose, yeah. Maybe? I mean, it sort of made him able to, to be careless, even about the things that he cared most about. I mean, it's a weird kind of, I don't know, uh, courage that is mm. 
not careless necessarily, but that isn't overwhelmed by, by fear, you know, just, I mean, it's the whole thing of like, whenever you have to go do something that matters a whole lot to you that can paralyze you. Right. And so it's like, how can I just be cool about this whole thing? And somehow he says, having these two ideas together, put him in the perfect mood. Yeah. I wish I could do that. That'd be awesome if just having those two thoughts <laughs> would would actually induce that mood. But if you could keep it, uh, you know, keep them both at, at the yeah. same level, and it's just, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. I, I'm always looking for some type of meaning for why everything happens the yeah. way it happens, and maybe in this case, that's not. This is the why things happen. Could be. It also kind of goes a long way to explaining something about those moments when Severian just seems to do reckless things. Mm-hmm. You know, when he just kind of does crazy things like like I know the way he describes uh, jumping when he's at the very beginning of Earth in the first chapter, like the way he describes, I have no idea what I was doing and my balance was all off. Nonetheless, <laughs> I decided to just shoot myself straight up into the space. You know, it's that yeah. kind of thing or where he's like, I'm going to jump from sail to sail. And I have no idea if anyone could ever do this or not. But here I go. You know, right. he does many things like that. But it this is a nice kind of explanation that is, I don't know, I actually think a kind of good definition of bravery. <laughs> like if you like when you are <laughs> brave and calm and cool, it is kind of like you can have both these things going at once. Um, yeah. But the other thing I want to focus on here is the fact that it's the trees that give him this perspective. It's specifically trees that give him this perspective of something bigger than him going on and that make him feel small. And I don't think it's accidental that also Vodalus is going to be associated with the trees and all of history's great monuments to uh, Severian's going to talk about how any great structure that we build is, is focused on the trees. Um, and he's the liege of leaves too. So all the stuff about trees, I got some stuff I want to say mm-hmm. that I want to come back to, but this is the first place where he specifically calls out the trees as somehow connected to something much bigger than any one person is severian the liege of leaves i don't know i mean he's the liege of light which in a way i mean (laughs) the sun right which gives life to trees so yeah but we'll we'll talk about that because i think i mean i know mark always has a ton to say about trees um and the way that vines and trees and foliage really have a huge important thing here and i just want to point out that it's complicated <laughs> and so i mean like well like mark has some great things to do but i think this is yeah we'll, we'll get back to it but but there's a lot of okay. weird stuff going on with trees here we shall cycle around to it so as severian is mulling over this silent soliloquy imagine the camera panning closer and closer as the voiceover of severian's thoughts drown everything else out and then suddenly Jonas says, Severian, are you all right? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how it goes. Yeah. So, yeah. So Severian's brought back to the world of the story. And he says, uh, yeah, did I see Mel? He says, oh, for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, I was only reflecting on the familiarity of this place, seeking to understand it. I think it recalls to me the many summer days in our citadel. These trees are nearly as large as the towers there. And many of the towers are wrapped in ivory, so that in quiet summer weather, the light between them has this emerald quality. And this sense of of recall is, I, I don't know, that this is part of the reason why I want to think that there's something else going mm. on. Because whenever Severian is recalling something, whatever you think is going on, that means something. Yeah. 
certainly thematically. Yeah. So what he says here is that he's thinking about, yeah, the necropolis and how the the trees look a lot like the towers when they're wrapped in ivory. And so he was thinking they're they're very similar, which is so weird because that's like the opposite of a tree in some ways. I mean, granted, the vines <laughs> are there to, I don't know, maybe you think nature coming back over something, but you would think that there's an obvious dis- difference between tree as natural living thing and then giant failed technological construction or something. Um, but right. yeah, but he, to him, they're very similar. The other thing I wanted to point out too about this, the whole weird soliloquy is it sounds like what he's describing is bravery. And just a couple chapters ago, we talked about how everything Severian was just obsessed with cowardice and bravery, right? And everything he was talking about Gerlos and, and about how Gerlos was a coward and, and he was brave. And now we've got another kind of weird discussion of bravery here, which is this time put in terms of, of like taking things seriously and not taking things or not take, not mm-hmm. necessarily not taking them seriously, but worrying too not, much. Not recognizing your place yeah, in the situation. Yeah, and not getting caught right. up with the future in some ways. Like even though mm-hmm. he desires to live, it's not like he's paralyzed by the possibility that he could lose it, which was kind of what he associated with cowardice, right? Of, of thinking too much about what's going on um, and not getting in there. And I don't know, the one thing this makes me think about is some of the things that we've talked about. And actually I think that came up in, in, a couple of the reader interviews about how the reason maybe Severian is chosen as the one who can do this thing and make this decision in the end is because there's something about him that's reckless and that isn't so horribly sort of self-preservative, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that, that even mm-hmm. though, yes, he wants to live, he still can make really tough, really even rash decisions sometimes um so yeah i just i feel like we're kind of getting here a little bit maybe about why severian can pass the test in the end if there's something about this this kind of bravery which can be both selfish and unselfish at the same time and his description of what he was thinking about though to jonas is slightly different than or at least coming at it from a different Mm -hmm. angle oh yeah of what he says he was thinking in his yeah. soliloquy. Yeah. And also it's the the way that he describes, he was like, did I seem ill? And Jonas says for a second, <laughs> he's like, yeah, you did. Like just for a second, you, you seemed kind of sick. So something about this bravery made Severian look wrong too, which is kind of, right. kind of a weird thing. Like it's, it's not like he looked yeah. calm and serene and holy. It's like, no, he looked sick. So yeah. it's not a perfect thing. In other words, I'm, I don't think that what Wolf is doing is saying right here, and this is what bravery is. Like, I think he's sort of describing mm-hmm. something su- specific to Severian. Does that make sense? Like, like yeah. what kind of courage he particularly needs. Um, but it, it's not something that I think everybody can have all the time. Because <laughs> Well, I mean, in the past, whenever I see these moments of Severian talking about something seeming familiar, I've always kind of defaulted since I've had that tool available to some sort of first variant mm-hmm. theory but the truth is i can't really see why that would be important other than you know you could say well you know first variant was here also yeah. but then so what for many places the first variant self-evidently would have been as mm-hmm. well yeah and the memory to the necropolis that one i don't really get it's what comes next that really does make sense as a kind of comparison mm-hmm. because we're going to get some flood imagery yeah so finally, Severian says, uh, you know, it's it's quiet here, like it is there in the necropolis. And I guess, you know, he's thinking about maybe the, the view from his mausoleum mm-hmm. 
And Jonas doesn't say anything to suggest he knows the Citadel intimately. He just says, oh, yeah? And Severian says, well, you know, you're a sailor. You must have gone by at lots and boats. And he says, occasionally, yes. And he's <laughs> actually, I think we're going to understand that he did go by it, but in, <laughs> in a ship, but not right. in a boat. Right. And then Severian suggests that he always wanted to be a sailor. And among all the other parallels, but you know, between Hathor and Severian, here yeah. is another one. And we find out the first time that Severian ever rode on a boat was when he and Agia were ferried to the Botanic Gardens on the island in the middle of the river, an event that was barely implied mm -hmm. at all, if if at all. And then he took his second boat ride immediately after in the Lake of Birds. And something interesting, he never mentions that he and Agia and Dorcas had to take a ferry off the island. So I don't know. What's the deal with that? Third boat rides are not as exciting, apparently. <laughs> it became old hat by then. He says that riding on this animal feels a lot like riding on a boat. And Greg, now I'm positive that the Balukathir is the constellation Navis. <laughs> and if you were going to get a picture of this tableau of the five of them, then you should draw it from the constellations that are above Navis. <laughs> he says... I feel that I'm traveling through the citadel in a flood, solemnly rode. And Jonas is looking at him like, this guy is troubled. <laughs> and he looks so serious that Severian just, okay, Severian laughs in his face because Severian is a doofus, man. <laughs> and then something weird happens, really. What happens at the plot level is that Severian stands up, but this is the way he describes it. He says, I burst out laughing at the side of his face and stood up, meaning, I think, to look over the side of the howdah and show by some remark about the forest floor that I was merely indulging my fancy. Uh, so the sense he gives here is that he doesn't really know why he stood up. He just did. And he was going to stand up and look over the side of the howdah and at the ground and say, ha ha, just curious what the ground is like, which is a weird and stupid thing to say. <laughs> Severian you know, with this laughing and random behavior, it's just acting like he's stoned. <laughs> so I don't know. Nothing particularly gives me an opportunity to frame this in a way that is meaningful to me. And maybe it's just his new mood that he's gotten, where he doesn't really care about things one way or the other, but he does care about them. I don't know. That was my thought. You know, I think of this kind of like like the Zen idea of Wu Wei of like, do things without doing them, like do things without uh -huh. effort or without trying. And it's almost like he's saying that the, the kind of mood he had to deal with survival was to stop worrying so much and just kind of go totally by instinct and feel. So I don't know, I get the sense maybe he, he knew he was going to have to do something. And I mean, he reacts so quickly when the guy attacks him here in a second that it almost makes me think that what he was really doing was psyching himself up to be like, all right, we're going to take on all these people, even though I'm still tied up. Right. And which is yeah. fine. Why not say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I kind of that's why I said Wu Wei, because it's kind of like in order to be successful at it, he couldn't plan it. And so he had to even mm. maybe kind of catch himself off guard. And by surprise, a little bit. I don't mm. know. I mean, that's well, that may be thinking way too much into this. And it could just, yeah, be a weird point where maybe Wolf didn't quite say as well. We have to get from here to there. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a good way sure, to start a fight, got, you know, but but yeah. I don't know. I mean, with the way that Severian was talking, it could be. But before we do that, though, I do want to point out that 
Severian says here, it's like I was lying in a boat in a flood going through the citadel. Mm-hmm. That's that's not an innocent comparison, right? It's not just because it was moving <laughs> back and forth, because we know that what Severian eventually is going to do is flood the earth. Now, even though yeah. that only happens in earth, it's, it's only ever actually spelled out in earth. The play certainly talks about the flood. The the symbols have the the ship Volant is like maybe flying over a flood um, mm-hmm. or or something about the rising fountain, fountain over waters. There's other plenty of images just in the four books of the new sun to talk about the flood itself. So um, I think this is very intentional of I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's actually Severian having a memory from the future or from another experience. It could be, though, because this is kind of precisely what's going to happen. He's going to be yeah. floating in the flood at some point in the future. Right. Well, anyway, so when Severian stands up, remember, his hands are tied behind him. The scarred guy stands up, too, and points his dagger at his throat just a half an inch away. And he tells Severian to sit himself back down. But Severian decides to be a jackass because, <laughs> you know, he's stoned. And he just shakes his head. No. I mean, this guy has a job to do, and Severian is just trying to provoke him. And if what happens next with Severian's plans, you know, that'd be one thing. But Severian says it wasn't. So the scarred guy says, get down or I'll rip your belly open. And Severian says, Mr. Smug, and lose the glory of bringing me back? I don't think so. <laughs> Wait until the others tell Votalus that you had me and you stabbed me while my hands were tied. <laughs> and here we go. The guy with the beard is holding Terminus S. And I guess you know he doesn't have any other weapons. Yes, he does. He does have other weapons, but he decides to use Terminus S anyway. Yeah. And he decides, so he decides to pull the sword out of its sheath, but he really doesn't know the right way to do it. The right way is to grab the sword by the quillions, the cross guard, and turn the sword perpendicular, holding it by the sheath, and then pull the sheath and the sword away from each other with both hands. But this guy holds the sheath steady in one hand, straight up and down, and holding the sword by the handle pulls up like he was, quote, jerking a weed from a field. So this puts you off balance when the sword comes out, because it's a long sword. And when the Balukathir rolls as it walks, the bearded guy bumps into Scarface, and they <laughs> both get cut by the sword. Quote, the edges of the blade keen enough to part a hair. So Scarface jumps back, and when he does, Jonas does a judo move to trip him. He puts one leg behind Scarface's leg, and then he wraps the other leg around the other side of his, of his leg, and Scarface falls right off of the howdah. Uh, even though there is a railing. This is totally a good moment for MST3K fans that we have our first official railing kill. <laughs> There's a whole episode where where people constantly die by falling over a railing. So over a rail, the yeah. railing kills, yep. So there we go. <laughs> that just reminds me that um, Joe Bob Briggs would always count monkey foos in his <laughs> movies. And we just had a chapter of monkey foo. So uh, Beardo drops Terminus S to look at his nasty cut, and Severian says, I knew that weapon as I know my own hand. Um, Look, it's been about 30 chapters (laughs) since you got that sword, Severian, but it's really only been a week. But never mind that. In almost a single move, Severian turns backwards, and with his tied hands, he holds the hilt and clasps the end of the blade with his feet, and he cuts the ropes on his wrists, you know, like they were pasta, Beardo 
now pulls a dagger, which of course is what he should have done in the first place, but Severian kicks him in the groin. I tell you, Severian is like a dancer at this moment. Beardo bends over, double. This is a perfect setup to Severian using Terminus S to remove his head. Honestly, I, I'm guessing that's what happened here. And when you do that and you don't have the victim kneel first, the contraction of the muscles causes him to stand up suddenly mm -hmm. erect with no head. And, you know, the spray of blood from Beardo alerts the driver now that something is going on. The driver, Severian calls him the trainer, is sitting outside the howdah. He looks back and Severian leans over the railing and takes off his head with a one-handed horizontal strike. Hello, Conan. Yeah, exactly. Which, remember, too, he said that that horizontal strike was much harder to do, right? He <laughs> bragged about that with Merwina. Well, now he's been practicing. Yeah. yeah. But now he's doing it just after being <laughs> set loose on the back of a moving giant elephant giraffe <laughs> rhino thing. Yeah. I will say, I this is not, though, the most Conan moment. I actually think the the biggest one is when he steps into the field to see Votilus and he's still yeah. there. Like, we're going to get that in a second. Yeah, like, it's coming. Perfect, it is coming. Yes. <laughs> you got to admit, of all the sort of like, I mean, yeah, sure, cheesy action moments. I mean, it's fun. It's cool stuff. But then to mm -hmm. have it sort of like so perfectly framed by him sort mm -hmm. of showing up in this moment, yeah. blood <laughs> falling off of him and holding him, you know, shirtless and with his sword standing out. It is so wonderfully over the top like yeah. it is exactly the kind of conan oh shoot the artist uh, uh, uh franzetta yeah so perfect conan franzetta kind of moment and it's just it's gratuitous but it's so fun like it's <laughs> so well done that i i love it yeah so at this as you say at this very moment the animal steps out between two giant trees that are growing so close that the animal seemed to have to squeeze himself like a mouse through a crevice in a wall. After the trees, the forest opens up into a glade, unlike Severian had seen in the forest up to that point. He says, I, I have to read this because it's one of my favorite parts. So, Where grass grew as well as fern and spots of sunlight, unshaded with green and rich as orpiment, played over the turf. Here, Vodalus had caused to be erected his throne beneath a canopy woven of flowering vines. And here, as a chance, he sat with the Chatelaine Thea beside him, just as we entered, judging and rewarding his followers. <laughs> um, let's see. Orpiment is a deep-colored orange-yellow arsenic sulfide mineral. So I guess this is kind of yellow orange yeah, color bright right yellow green sort of some kind of yeah. sun and since we got the red sun this isn't going to look exactly like uh what we might think of as you know the bright blinding forest clearings instead it's got this yeah this weirdish orangey kind of yeah. thing yeah and the scene where we see Vodalus is kind of reminiscent of robin hood mm -hmm. jonas is lying on the floor of the howdah He's cutting the ropes of his hands with Beardo's dagger. Severian's interest in Devotalus's glade with Thea at his side could not have been more perfect. Yep. He's standing erect on the back of the Beluga there, holding up his sword, bloody to the hilt in his foliage and cloak. The Beluga there is being driven by a headless man, no doubt spouting a fountain of blood. 
And I suppose Beardo finally collapsed or fell off the animal. There's no mention of his erect, headless body. But that feeling he got when he saw the dead bodies and decided that he would fight to live without concern for whether he had lived or died, it caused him to make no attempt to flee. If he had fled, they would have killed him. The Votolari are all dodging the Beluga there as it strode driverless into the glade. It finally stops in front of Votolus's canopy and throne. Once again, could not be more perfect. Mm -hmm. And the driver finally fell forward and landed at Votolus's feet. <laughs> then Severian leaned out of the howda, tapped the animal behind the knee with his sword to get it to kneel. A perfect introduction to this hero. Could not have gone better. <laughs> this is like the world's best interview. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Vodalus smiled a thin smile that held many things, but amusement was one of them, and perhaps the foremost. I sent my men to fetch the headsman, he said. I perceive they succeeded. That's an interesting description of that smile. Yeah. Held many yeah. things, which indeed it does. <laughs> yeah. He's a complicated dude. Not yeah. the most complicated, but... <laughs> So Severian salutes with his sword by holding the hilt before his eyes as they were taught to do when an exultant came to observe an execution in the Grand Court. But Severian corrects him. He reminds him of their first meeting when Severian prevented Vodalus from being beheaded. Sir, they have brought you the anti-headsman. There was a time when your own would have rolled on fresh-turned soil had it not been for me. Severian says, he looked at me more closely then, at my face, instead of at my sword and cloak. And after a moment, he said, yes, you were the youth. Has it been that long? Just long enough, sir. So, like I said, there's a theory that Severian's meeting with Vodalus occurred, as Vodalus reckons time, only a little over a week, you know, two weeks ago. And the body that they extracted was feckless, and I admit to finding that very appealing. More appealing all the time since I first heard it. And it just really has grown on me. It feels apt. However, this seems to suggest that it was as long ago for Vodalus as it was for Severian, that he remembers it being some time ago, and Severian has grown a bit since then. I admit it's not definitive, but as I read this remark, I read it as a strike against that theory. Yeah, because in order to make that work, you'd really have to either make Vodalus truly clueless or have him be sort of completely nonplussed at the fact that, oh, yeah, you're that same little kid I saw two right. weeks ago now suddenly grown up. Yeah, it's been and, a year and a half for him. So Right. So something, yeah, something doesn't quite add up to that. Um, but... I don't know, but there's still, like we had talked about before, there's still a lot of ways that people can think of that body being Thecla. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I still am, I'm still caught up in the fact that he talks about getting lost in the path, which mm -hmm. getting in that first chapter, which is Sir Severian does, which is exactly how time travel always happens when you sort of go down a path and seem right. to get turned around a little bit. So yeah, there's still lots of reasons to wonder if it's there, but this part, I agree with you, does seem to make it much harder to right. come up because you have to do even more explaining about yeah. this one vague quote. Yeah. Right. 
So Votalus promises to talk about their encounter in private, but he asks him to stand at his left while he conducts business. Severian and Jonas get off the Belucathir, and two grooms lead him away, and there's no mention of people reclaiming Scarface and Beardo's bodies or heads or anyone dragging the driver's body away yeah. from in front of Votalus. He just keeps on doing his administrative affairs, maybe, with this headless body at his feet. It's also the first time we really see a kind of king ish thing going on here mm -hmm. right we've heard about the autark so much but this is the first image of what we typically think of as a kind of sword and sorcery king right he's got the canopy he's got a throne he's got a, a lady beside him all these people are coming to him it's like a typical court um and so it almost feels like okay we're being shown something that is stereotypical even kind of genre like here but that almost means that it has to not be right yeah. Right. And, and that that's that's kind of all the rules that we've learned through reading this up so far is that whenever anything seems deliberately fantasy, something totally else is going on. And even though this isn't supernatural or magical, it is so I mean, like the, the tree standing is like columns and so many of the ways that he describes uh, as he'll do in a second about how the trees look like architecture. I mean, some of that seems like total call out to. Tolkien and elf mm -hmm. kingdoms and things like that. So we're getting some sort of stereotypical things, which should, I think at this point, prime us to think, okay, this must be all wrong. And so maybe of course <laughs> we're going to find out. Yeah. Vodalus well, we wouldn't know if we we're the first time we wouldn't, we would think, Oh, okay. This is, this is the hero we've heard about. I can see how this story is progressing. Yeah. And we're not going to actually get another throne room type scene. Even though we're going to, we're going to House Absolute, we're going to meet the Autark. We're not going to get a scene like this until Earth of the New Sun, right? Yeah, and that's a very different context, right? Exactly. So he keeps on. He says, "There we waited and heard Vodalus give his orders and transmit his plans, reward and punish for perhaps a watch. All the boasted human panoply of pillars and arches is no more than an imitation in sterile stone of the bowls and vaulting branches of the forest." And here it seemed to me that there was scarcely any difference between the two, except that the one was gray or white, and the other brown and pale green. Then I believed I understood why all the soldiers of the Autark and all the thronging retainers of the exultants could not subdue Vodalus. He occupied the mightiest fortress of earth, greater far than our citadel, to which I had likened it. So, essentially, he makes the point that the purpose of columns in architecture is to imply the majesty of the forest, which... I suppose could be true, you know, like uh, Corinthian columns with their leaves at the top. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think that Wolf makes an analogy between those and trees at yeah. one point uh, in uh, the fifth head of Cerberus. Oh, uh, cool. But I like this too, because we're going back to something special about the trees. Like before, right, the trees were things that were so much more significant in the world and made mankind feel small. Now we have how does he what does he say again all the boasted human panoply of pillars and arches like that's all just people trying to make things that were kind of like trees and they're pale imitations right gray or white compared to mm -hmm. the actual living colors um so the trees here seem really really good and in both cases the trees seem super yeah. powerful and super good but we'll see if that right lasts because yeah we'll, we'll get there i gotta get to the end of the chapter <laughs> before i can pull all this together but yeah. Then Vodalus dismisses everyone and gets up from the dais, a uh, raised platform that he's sitting on, so he could see everyone and everyone would know that, you know, he was above them. 
and he gets up from the dais to talk to Severian. Remember that Votilus is a true exultant. Even though Severian is tall for a normal man, Votilus is taller, taller even than Thecla. And Thea is tall too. And Severian says Votilus bent over him as Severian would have bent above a child. We mentioned Tolkien references, and this scene calls to mind Frodo and Sam meeting yeah, Galadriel totally. and Keelyborn in The Lord of the Ring. Volus says, You served me once. For that, I will spare your life, whatever else befalls. Though it may be necessary that you remain my guest for a time, knowing that your life is no longer in danger, will you serve me again? And so this is another one of Severian's kind of asides, but he's also going to tell it to Votilus too. But he says, the oath to the autark I had taken on the occasion of my elevation had not the strength to resist the memory of that misty evening with which I begun this account of my life. Oaths are only mere weak things of honor compared to the benefits we give to others, which are things of the spirit. Let us once save another and we are his for life. I've often heard it said that gratitude is not to be found. This is not true. Those who say so have always looked in the mistaken place. One who truly benefits another is for a moment at a level with the pan creator, and in gratitude for that elevation will serve the other all his days. And so I told Votilus. So no oath is as meaningful as an act of charity to another person. Save a life. And that life owns you by some invisible, unbreakable chains. And maybe that's the meaning of fatherhood, right? Why a child means more to a father than a father could ever mean to a child. So, to that sacred affirmation, Votilus says, well, good, whatever, let's eat. <laughs> and I'll give you your orders. <laughs> right. Which can go by so fast here. <laughs> you know, when you're reading it, especially for the first time, that the way, I mean, Wolf totally understates it. Mm -hmm. um, and, but how does he say, oh yeah, the, the actual word, he's like, good, he said, and clapped me on the shoulder. Come, not far from here, we have a meal prepared. <laughs> right? Like, it's just so, like, uh, I mean, Severian's really basically saying, you know, yeah. I, I have this deep, well-thought-out reason for why I owe you myself and you have given me an experience closest to God that I can ever have. And, and Vodalus just kind of shrugs it off. And yeah. It's subtle, especially maybe when you read it the first time, but it's totally the first thing that completely undercuts all this sort of high seriousness that Severian has been building up through the whole thing about, you know, wanting to, to show how important Vodalus had been to him and, and all this sort of high heroism and all the seriousness of all this tree imagery that goes along with Vodalus. But then right here at the end, it's just like, ah, eh, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's so perfect to, to me, at least a kind of undercutting of what Vodalus actually is, is that when he's presented with something super serious by somebody, he doesn't even really recognize it. Yeah, yeah. It's very says, sir, I have disgraced my guilt once. I only ask that I may not be asked to disgrace it again. I guess, essentially... I've declared you my leader, but please don't ask me to do anything to embarrass the torturers mm -hmm. anymore. Which is a little weird, too, because it's like we would think that his oath to the autark, like to the leader, would be the main thing. But this really shows Severian's, like, I mean, his loyalty is very specific, right? It's right. specifically to his guild, because that's his family, the only family he's ever known. But it's just interesting where you would think in a sort of medieval society type thing like this, right? The loyalty should go all the way primarily to your king or something mm -hmm. like that, but it doesn't. It's right. very local. And to this, Vodalus replies, 
no one will know what you will do for me. And so that's good enough for Severian. He'll agree to do things that are contrary to the oath that he's made, but no one will find out about that. So, okay. (laughs) And something we should, I guess we should point out at this point, Vodalus is a liar. Mm -hmm. He's going to have Severian deliver a message to his, quote, agent in the House Absolute. Vodalus doesn't know that that agent is the autarch himself who is waiting for Severian to arrive. But part of that message is for his agent to kill Severian. Yep. So another way that Vodalus undercuts all that sort of greatness and goodness that's here. Right. So yeah. So I mean, all this stuff about Vodalus, I think, is really cool also because it latches on to my sort of obsession with the color symbolism in here, because everything in this is all about green like there's green mm-hmm. in the background of everything that goes on in this chapter and in the end you're left with the trees and even i mean if you're thinking about color green it's all ends up really ambiguous like the whole point is not in the end that that you know i worried before like are there ways you can code blue and green like are blue and green in wolf's mind or even in one story are they do they have something to them i don't know but what this chapter really kind of clarified for me was that the thing about the colors is that they always can represent one side of things, but then there's also always kind of a yin yang thing going right. on. Like there's always a darker side. So with the trees, Severian's saying all these things that seem on the surface true. Like, you know, you go see the redwoods in California and you're humbled by, you know, the age and the giant, just all the amazing things that go on with that. And the fact that here he talks about how maybe all of human architecture is just an attempt to to live up to whatever these grand trees represent. Mm-hmm. But also if the title of this is The Liege of Leaves, and we're finding out that Vodalus, who is borrowing that kind of symbolism, you know, he's pretty empty right. in the end. We're going to know that. And he has, you know what, he has no reference for these trees. This is where yeah. he's hiding out. But he wants to leave. He wants to take off to the stars. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He doesn't want to live in these leaves. He's not like the elves. This is not really his home. Right. right. So he's like a he's a fake elf at this thing. And he's sort of using that elf kind of mystique in order to make himself seem powerful. And it, it seems to work. Like even Severian is like, yes, his entire there, you know, all of the right. wild was his uh uh yeah, was his fortress. Right. Um, it was his fortress, his cathedral, his yeah, his his uh castle. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, too, because Mark always talks about how trees and the lianas um, in Short Sun, how there's always something sinister about those that's connected there. But it's mm-hmm. it's a sinister that's also kind of like a halfway point between something else. Like there's, again, it's always that two-sided thing of a kind of evolution combined with something that's not quite developed yet. Yeah. Um, but I feel like you're you're still getting that with with here. Like there's all kinds of wonderful stuff in the green that's come through. And there's all those Robin Hood associations and all the sort of purity associations and all the things greater than human beings and uncorrupted. And, um, yeah, this, this purity in nature. But then also things can sort of turn that and twist it. Right. Um, and we see that a couple of times, like the 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 spaceships that are covered in ivy. And look maybe like trees, but are really just kind of a corrupted version of apparently these other things. So it's a cool chapter where you get all these moments with the imagery that's kind of, it keeps switching. It keeps showing different sides of itself um, that I just think is really cool. But now I want to ask Mark about how he might connect the the stuff with tree imagery and tree symbolism here to the other things later in the book. 
Yeah. And also in the end, I think it's just, it's a cool way where everything in the chapter is priming you for this big entrance where we're going to see Votalus and Severian's going to come in as starts off as a hero and whatnot. But it's so cool how he just really quickly with one little tiny scene right at the end makes Votalus seem like small. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, from, from this point, uh, Votalus is just going to shrink mm-hmm. more and more and more. There's all kinds of things from the next couple chapters really start to make him look non-mythic. And it's true. I mean, it's Severian sort of finally coming face to face with one of his idols and realizing, yeah, he's flawed. Even if Severian doesn't know the depth of it quite yet, he's certainly at this point going to realize, oh, it's not like suddenly going to make my life perfect and meaningful by following Vodalus. Yeah. But even like he says, there was still something about Vodalus that set him on this path. Like, right. like the image of what he thought Votalus might represent was something that really inspired him. And he's going to find out that he can't get that in Votalus, but there's still something about that coin and about that promise of what Votalus could have meant as a symbol that's still going to make him into something else. So right. but it's another kind of cool thing where it's like the, the thing that I thought the symbol meant wasn't. And there was something that was that it meant even more. And, you know, it's interesting the chapters that have the most action seem to seem to go by really fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't seem to take much time uh, talking. We talk for hours about something where it felt some thought that Severian has about trees, but you know, you you get these scenes where really amazing action scenes. Yeah, uh, like like this one, something that that probably you know a, a lot of fantasy authors would just relish and and just to just lavish over this would this is the center of the narrative and for this it's great and then it's it's over and you can recognize that it's well done wolf could have written scenes like this over and over and over yeah oh yeah i mean it's still as far as a visual thing goes it's badass right (laughs) i mean it's so cool um but it's but what's fun about it is he gives you that thing but then in and i would think like a typical chapter would end right with severian standing in there and like the last would be like my liege i am here or something you know whatever right some kind of goofy like one-liner but instead what he does is he carries it on to okay great it's wonderful to see um actually stand over there for a minute for an (laughs) hour or so because i got to take care of some stuff then we'll talk and finally when he gets his audience with him he says this really big thing and the chapter just ends with cool thanks man (laughs) oh good you're going to follow me good yeah it's just a really really thoughtful way to get all that excitement of those action-filled things but then to turn it into a character thing where severian does this amazing thing and it's more important for Vodalus to stay in charge and so instead of certainly he's not going to be awed by that but he's also not really going to recognize like how amazing that was right to see him come in like that it's more like great thanks Uh, let me handle my business because i'm more important um and it's just a cool way to give you all this sort of insight into how Vodalus doesn't live up to the sort of beautiful wonderful hope of a king in exile or something like that he's just a small man doing his thing And we certainly hope that y'all have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints about this highly symbolic, highly elusive, and literary referential scene. 
that we've had in this chapter. And I hope that you will bring them all to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, or email. You can find out how to do that on the show notes. Leave an app podcast for review and tell your wolf reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. See you later. Imagine yourself there in the world's largest overstuffed chair, knocking down trees, anything you please. But elephants don't have to be like that. They can be agile as a kitty cat, stand on the tiptoes. Oh. Well, remember, elephants never forget. Let's go for an elephant ride. Go for an elephant ride. Rumble through the jungle side to side. Whoa, let's go for an elephant ride. Jungle Pad. an elephant ride. Among those mighty trunks, even the Belucha. Belucha. Belucather? Belucather. Belucather. Okay, good. So we'll see how it all works with a new microphone this time. And if. I'm sure it'll sound just fine. I'm sure it'll be all right. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if it sounds like I'm talking to you through a, you know, a tin can and a string. Solemnly. Try again. Solomon, Solomon, how do you I don't know, say Solomon? Like rockin' Baluka there. <laughs> In the Patreon uh, posts, let's try then, because this is actually, I did not write this down. <laughs> oh, did I lose you again? No, no, I'm just, I'm, oh, okay. I'm sorry about that. I, like, I, should, no, I, I, should like, heavy, I should breathe heavily when I do that. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a short one by Ike Lurie or. By, it's a short one by Ike Lou. It's a short one by like. <laughs> it's a short one by Ike Lueri. I hope that pronunciation is right, Ike. Because <laughs> we're not going to try it. I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> I'm going. Did you go away? I don't hear you. You tweaked out. Oh, you're gone. Are we? Is that everything? Yeah.